Hello and welcome to Socialism, the weekly Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. Popular uprisings are cascading like chain reactions across the globe. Strongman right-wing leaders lie and cheat their way to power in some countries and are brought to their knees by mass movements in others. As a new year opens up, class struggles and capitalist instability will only intensify and spread. This episode of Socialism looks at the year ahead, 2020, a promise of rebellion. The world entered 2019 in a state of economic disarray and political convulsion, and it's safe to say I think the world is entering 2020 in the same way. So we've got here today Peter Taff, who's the General Secretary of the Socialist Party. Hello Peter. Hi. And Happy New Year to you. And you. And to our listeners. Last year concluded with the electoral victory of Boris Johnson in the United Kingdom, which on the face of it, in terms of his numbers in Parliament, looks overwhelming. But is that really the case? No, it's not the case. It's due to a number of factors. But in terms of the popular vote, it's about a 1% increase on 2017. Mm. Really, Johnson won the election by default because he concentrated on the issue of Brexit. This was a Brexit election. And unfortunately, all other issues seemed to be crowded out. They weren't really. They were there in the lives and the conditions of people and particularly of the most downtrodden working class people, you know, in the austerity. In fact, people are trying to rechristen the period of the last 10 years as the austerities, a bit like the (laughs) 1930s. And actually, it's a very appropriate term of what actually happened in relation to Britain and not just Britain, but for the advanced industrial countries quite apart from the poor underdeveloped countries in Africa, Asia and Latin America. So the conditions in Britain are quite horrendous for broad swathes of the population. We oppose the capitalist EU. It's a neoliberal project Mm. whose design is to carry through measures if they can get away with it, that depresses, that cuts the living standards of working people. We've been opposed to the EU as a capitalist club since its foundation and it was correct for Corbyn and others to oppose the EU out of one side of his mouth but unfortunately the message became extremely confused and confusing up to and in the general election particularly when he used the phrase about being neutral on the question of the EU. I mean in politics that's a fatal mistake because Mm. if you're neutral you're standing in the middle of the road and if you stand in the middle of the road you're likely to be knocked down and that's what actually happened in this election because Johnson just concentrated on get Brexit done playing on the feeling of both the Remain and the Leavers that the chaos resulting from the discussion over the EU and over Brexit or Remain had reached such a stage that it was utterly confusing, people wanted to have progress and so on. So the simple slogan of get Brexit done, if it was contrasted to the indecisiveness, unfortunately, of Jeremy Corbyn, whose position was neither here nor there, and even people like Lenny McCluskey, who's the General Secretary, General of, the Secretary of the Unite Union, 
came out and explicitly said after the election this was down to the equivocation of the Labour leadership, of the Labour Party itself. He doesn't obligate himself from responsibility for this, mm. and it was entirely accurate. We said this, not just now in the aftermath of the election, of a kind of latter-day critics of Jeremy Corbyn, because we gave enormous support to Corbyn, to the left, and to the Labour Party in the elections. We wanted the Labour victory, but we saw, through our intervention in the election, that it was not cutting it with the majority of ordinary working people who were looking for answers on jobs, on conditions, on wages, on the gig economy, of the insecurity, so on and so forth, who identified all those issues, big swathes of them anyway, with the existence of the capitalist EU. So the reason for the victory of Boris Johnson, it's by default, it's not an accurate reflection of his overall support. It's based upon a very narrow basis. He's got a parliamentary majority, but unfortunately, given the vagaries of the electoral system, a small increase in the popular vote can result in a big majority of over 80 on the number of MPs in Parliament. But it's not a real reflection of the social relations that exist between the classes, between capital and labour, between working people and the handful of billionaires and millionaires, the top elite in society. It's not a true reflection of the enormous discontent that existed before the election, mm. that was reflected in the election, and will be even more the case in the period that we're going into after the election. I mean, if Johnson had any sense, he would heed the words of a former forerunner of himself as Prime Minister, a Walpole, when he said, he was a Prime Minister in the early 19th century, Tory Prime Minister, he said, well, they're ringing the bells today, and tomorrow they'll be wringing their hands. And the day after that, <laughs> I don't know what working people will do to people like Johnson, given the conditions that they will face under this quite horrendous right-wing government. So he's going to face a lot of anger. He's going to face opposition. But he immediately set out an important attack on organised workers, perhaps anticipating this in the Queen's speech which of course is where the government has the monarch explain its legislative priorities. And Johnson's proposing a new addition to Britain's anti-trade union laws, which already are some of the most anti-democratic in the Western world. So could you comment on that briefly, but also on the fact that he's not the only capitalist leader resorting to repression of workers, is he? This is part of world capitalism's response to a global wave of yes. uprisings and protests. Yes, yes. I mean, and that's very important. First of all, on the proposed anti-trade union, anti-democratic proposed legislation. They already have a panoply of huge weapons to use against working people. Even before the election, they used their courts to try and, and they did successfully, postpone the strikes of post workers, campaigning against the worsening of conditions of wages, so on and so forth. Mm. So this legislation is aimed Specifically, and Johnson spelt this out, it's aimed against particularly those in the transport sector, in the railways and so on, and it's based upon what alleged is the case in France, for instance, at the present time, mm. where, for instance, the government has possibilities of banning strikes if there's no emergency cover. Now, in our opinion, 
to have cover when you're coming out on strike is a kind of scabs charter. Mm. It's given free reign for people to break strikes when workers have voted as they did in relation to the railways as they did in relation to the post. 97% voted in favour of strike action. It was banned by the flick of the measures of the courts and so on in a completely undemocratic manner. The only reason why working people have managed to have the right to strike is they fought against the undemocratic laws of the past Mm. and they risked imprisonment, transportation and the rest of it. Their funds being taken off them by the capitalist state, by the representatives of the employers and the rich. So this is a repressive measure which they threaten to use against working people. We say, before I answer the other part of the question, is that the working people should not remain passive in the face of this threat. It's a threat at the present time. There should be called by the TUC and the Rail Workers Unions for mass demonstrations. This is against democracy, real democracy, the rights of working people, and should call in that demonstration for strike action against any attempt of the government to legislate further anti-union repressive legislation against working people. Mm. Now, as you say, it's not just in Britain that the employers, to give them the right name, the capitalists, and their apparatus of the capitalist state, which acts on behalf of the rich, and only really on behalf of the rich. Throughout the world, the course of the last year has been, and particularly the last three months, has seen a series of uprisings taking place amongst the working people in the advanced industrial countries, the growing opposition to Trump in the US, and if I could just say, in passing, Mm. the latest measure of the assassination of the leader of the Revolutionary Guards in Iran, so-called, so-called, who really are the hardliners in Iran and have come into opposition of the youth and other sections of the population, but nevertheless have played a role in opposition to American imperialism, that action can actually light a fire in the Middle East, the consequences of which we can suffer here in Britain, Mm. as the Iraq war did in the terrible consequences of the Iraq war, of what's happened in Syria, and it's the working people of London, of Paris, of Berlin, and so on who pay for this in the form of terrorism. They're the ones who become victims of the consequences of these kind of actions. But it's quite a mad proposal of Trump, or a mad action of Trump, where he sanctioned that particular action to assassinate this individual. Now we can see counteractions by Iran and in Iraq, We can see the US being attacked, even evicted possibly from Iraq in the next period, the 5,000 troops who are left in Iraq, and of the whole of the Middle East going up in flames with the price of oil skyrocketing and so on. This is the consequence, or one of the consequences, of the measures of an out-of-control Trump representing the employing class in the US. So it's not just in the US, it's the, the situation in Iraq. That was a byword for sectarian conflict, but as seen before this particular development, a united movement of Shia and Sunni, a class movement, Mm. which was beginning to organize and develop an independence which rooted in the independence of Iraq, develop trade unions, develop a voice of the working class to begin to change the situation. It's the same in the Lebanon, Mm. where a tremendous movement has developed the greatest movement since we had the Cedar Revolution of about 15 years ago. And then, of course, 
there's been the enormous movement in Latin America. The whole continent has socially been in flames because of the uprising. It's not just demonstrations. It's not just a movement. These are uprisings of working people who could take no more in Chile. After all, Chile to my generation and to working people who have a certain experience in the labour movement in Britain is identified with repression. Mm. It's identified with Pinochet. It's identified with dictatorship and the legacy of dictatorship. This tremendous movement that's taken place of youth, of a new generation that's trying to overthrow the legacy of the Pinochet regime and has used the traditional methods of the working class of mass demonstrations, of strikes, of opposition to the regime, it remains undefeated in the movement that's taking place and hopefully we'll see the overthrow of the current regime in Chile. And by the way, this regime rests upon what the Pinochet regime did in driving down conditions. It only took really a small increase of about 15 cents in fares to provoke the uprising in Chile. Similarly, in Bolivia, where the right wing have managed to evict Morales from power, even though he had the majority, that movement's still going on. In Argentina, in Colombia, in Mexico, throughout the whole of Latin America, a movement is taking place. This is a movement against capitalism and landlordism, the legacy of backwardness that has crippled these countries, and they are reaching out their hands in solidarity with one another and with us in the so-called advanced industrial countries for a world movement to finish with the legacy of dictatorship of small unrepresentative capitalists who no longer represent the majority of their population. This is a tremendous movement, but repression has been used in the first instance. The normal first call of resort mm. for the ruling class to use repression against the movement that is taking place. It will not work. There will be waves of this movement and it will be for basic democratic rights. Look at the movement in Hong Kong. Mm. In Hong Kong, it's almost demonstrated undefeatable characteristics of a youth that was not used to struggle, that's come out into the streets and demonstrated and given a lesson to workers and young people everywhere of how to fight against the dictatorial regime. Because they're fighting really against the dictatorial regime of China and the local satraps, their local representatives in Hong Kong itself. And what an alarm. And what a demonstration to carry actually on their person, their own wills, because they expect to be killed. Many of them expect to be killed in the demonstration. And therefore, we believe they should be hailed and supported by the world labour movement. It's a sign, it's if you like, the music of the not too distant future of working people throughout the world moving against capitalism, against landlordism, against the criminal policies of the ruling class on climate change, mm. the consequences of which we see in an advanced industrial country, even though it's in the South. You know, the so-called lucky country of Australia is a byword for a catastrophe mm. on the basis of capitalism. They have no answers to the problems confronting humankind and particularly the problems confronting the working class. And European capitalism has not been immune to this upsurge of popular protest, either in the east of Europe or in the west of Europe. So what would you say are the main characteristics of the crisis in Europe? Well, the capitalist system that's based upon the production of profits for a handful of coupon clippers, for an autocracy, really, 
at the top who control, the billionaires who control these societies now, that it's based upon that, but European capitalism, who used to boast that we delivered the goods, we produced the wealth that is consumed by the working people, that is no, no longer the case. They've reached historically the end of the road. It's not quite at the end yet. There's a little bit of road left, but it's not able to produce to the satisfaction of the populations of Europe an adequate living standard which was demonstrated in the crisis of 2007-2008-9. And although that was a devastating crisis that destroyed more industry for only one reason, you could not produce for profit, so they closed down those industries, they threw out of work millions of workers, 19 million workers out of the factories. Mm. They destroyed, in effect, like a vandal, a huge kind of international vandal, productive capacity, more was closed down than at any time since for 80 years since the depression of the 1930s. That's what capitalism has meant. And they haven't fully recovered from that. There was a slight increase in production. But the legacy of austerity, the austerities, the legacy of poverty, the legacy of low wages, the legacy now of the gig economy, mm. that is a byword for low wages, low trade union membership, an inability of working people to resist the bulldozer of world capitalism. All of that is the consequence of the crisis of European capitalism. They are no longer able to do as they did in the period of 1950 to 1975, which is the greatest boom in the history of the world and the greatest boom in world capitalism. And they said these days would go on forever. We, the Marxists, predicted the crisis that developed in 1975. Mm. It wasn't sufficient, and they were blocked by the leaders of the labor movement to propel the working class into power and to begin to change the situation. Since then, we've had a very unstable economic situation. Read The Guardian. Read Larry Elliott in The Guardian, who had an article in yesterday saying, well, there's been no real improvement in the conditions, in the economic conditions of Britain since 2007-8. A small increase here. A slight decrease there. Mm. But overall, production has stagnated and living standards have stagnated as well. And we face an ocean of working people who are kind of stuck in this milieu of low wages, mm. of terrible working conditions, of terrible social conditions and of a gradual decline. You know, the press have conducted the campaign down with the miserablists is their slogan. What does that mean? That means down with those people who are predicting doom and gloom. They probably mean somebody like me. For telling the truth. It. It's here already. Yeah, exactly. For telling the truth. Johnson won the election, you see, because he wasn't a miserableist. Mm. He was a cheerful old chap. Yeah, I read that article. How patronising is that? Suggesting yeah, that the North vote right. for Johnson because he was chipper. That, that's right. Come yeah. off it. I mean, but nevertheless... That's the kind of myth, that's the story they're trying to sell. It might sell a few newspapers. It's not going to go down in Glasgow, in Newcastle, in Leeds, in London, mm. with the ocean of misery and the disgusting conditions that working people are expected to tolerate. No, they're going to fight. And whether we are there or not, working people will fight. That's the most important thing to understand. Working people do not decide to fight against these conditions because we say so, we can play a part, we can agitate, we can rouse people up. The most advanced layer 
the more developed layer, but the mass of working people only begin to move into opposition to this system when they say, we've had enough. We cannot live like this any longer. That's what they're doing in Latin America. Mm. That's what they're doing in Asia. That's what they're doing in Hong Kong. And tomorrow, and by that I mean it could be much sooner than tomorrow, there'll be a movement in Britain after this election on the industrial plane that will challenge to its core the Johnson government and put on the agenda not just the struggle against capitalism, but for the alternative, which is democratic socialism of controlling the means of production and organising a democratic socialist plan of production. Leon Trotsky, who was, along with Vladimir Lenin, one of the leaders of the Russian Revolution in 1917, he once wrote about Britain that it avoided revolutionary movements, big shocks and catastrophes to the ruling class like revolutions by inflicting shocks and catastrophes in other countries through yes. imperial oppression, colonial wars, and it built up fat reserves, which you could then use to grant concessions. And when it came to the end of that, then it was facing a problem. And in fact, he was right shortly after that, there was a general strike in Britain in 1926. Yes. You mentioned earlier, of course, that the US, under this maverick right-wing populist Donald Trump, is prosecuting this insane foreign policy in other countries. You think there's some of that going on there? Because certainly... The United States, capitalism's decaying superpower, has been experiencing more and more serious social and political spasms. Yes, that is absolutely correct. Yes, I mean, American imperialism and the American economy and Trump, in a certain sense, is treading in the footsteps, he doesn't know it, of previous representatives of British capitalism. Because, of course, they rested on an empire in which they boasted the sun would never set. Mm -hmm. Well, it did set with the uprising of their former colonial slaves in India, Africa, Latin America, who rose up and demanded independence, they still maintained their economic stake in those countries. But nevertheless, it was weakened. And therefore, Britain was thrown back on its reserves. And then together with the, the mishandling of the economy by different Tory governments and by Labour governments when they were in power, were in this parlous situation that they face today, but so does American imperialism. You know, Trump is repeating in a certain sense with a much bigger base, much bigger population and so on, more powerful industry, is repeating the experience of the British ruling class of what Marx called the slowing glorious decline mm. of British capitalism. That's being repeated in a certain sense in relation to the US in its competition with China, in its competition with other capitalist powers, it's trying to unload the burden, unload the responsibility for its decline, and it is in decline, onto the shoulders of others who it's supposed to be in solidarity with as a common capitalist class ruling the world. And America has built into its foundations now, not just the problems of the US and the US economy, but has built into its foundations all the explosive material of world capitalism. Mm. That's what Leon Trotsky said as well. He didn't just write a very good book, Where Is Britain Going? That, as you correctly said, not exactly, but the trends that were developing in Britain was leading to a collision, a colossal collision between labour and capital that would result in a general strike. And that took place in 1926, which, because of the faulty leadership of the TUC and some on the left as well, the ruling class managed to win that battle, as they did with the miners' strike much later in the 1980s for the same reason, of faulty leadership in the course of the battle. It was contrasted to what we did 
in Liverpool when we won a tremendous victory that I see the Guardian is trying to downgrade. And this is when we, uh, we it, were the leading influence in Liverpool City Council. That's beat right. Thatcher. Yes, we beat Thatcher. You know, we managed to extract concessions from it. And then on the poll tax, we organised 18 million people not to pay the poll tax and we defeated Thatcher. Thatcher admits that in her autobiography. But there are some people who like to pretend that we were a tiny group that didn't have influence and an effect. <laughs> History tells another story. Mm. I invite anybody who wants to get to the truth to go to independent sources on this, like the independent source of Mrs Thatcher's autobiography, in which she refers to those people who were behind the poll tax struggle as being responsible for her demise and her removal from history. She was the Iron Lady. We reduced her to iron filings, as we've said many times, in many meetings up and down Britain. Same thing is posed in relation to the US. Not exactly a repetition. History never repeats itself in exactly the same way. But there can be a combination of circumstances where Trump could come up against a brick wall, even in relation to this assassination that's taken place of the leader of the so-called Revolutionary Guards in Iran Mm. that I've commented on earlier because of the repercussions that that could have not just in Iran but in the in the US as well not just in Iraq and throughout the Middle East but internationally and so on this is a presidency that's out of control he thinks that this will strengthen his hand by showing the power of American imperialism Mm. in relation to the upcoming challenge he faces on impeachments but it could have the opposite effect it's not clear we have to see how it works out it could reinforce the idea this is a man who's a bit like dr strangelove (laughs) the character in the movie who's quite mad and threatens the world with nuclear annihilation this is a man who's got his finger on the button and if he can act in such a quixotic fashion such an uncontrolled fashion in relation to iran What can he do in relation to other crises? Mm. There must be strategists of capital in the US who are pondering this question and maybe if they were doubtful about the impeachment, might swing over. We don't know. He's got a certain partisan basis there. But one thing is clear, this action of Trump will not be without consequences. Mm. It will not be a freebie. He'll not get away with the free on this. There will be repercussions that will endanger the position of US imperialism, and together with other factors of the economy and so on, could endanger the position of Trump by eating into the living standards of the working class. This is a man who's been talking about withdrawing all foreign troops from abroad. Mm. He takes an action now that embroils them in even more possible military confrontations and compounds the problems of paying for them and therefore not having the layer of fat in the economy that could be used to buy off, if you like, sections of the population into supporting him in the next election. It's a very volatile period, this. And it's a very interesting period as to what's likely to happen in the US. So what are the prospects then for capitalism as a world system in 2020? Can it find any solution to the growing agonies breaking out for it across the planet? And more importantly, what has it got to promise today's workers and young people? What should they do about that? Well, there's no such a thing as the final crisis of capitalism. Mm -hmm. Capitalism will always find a way out, even on the bones of the working class, even on the basis of the degradation of the working class and the worsening of the conditions of the working class. That's a given for Marxists and socialists. There's no automaticity 
in history, if I could use that horrible phrase, there's no <laughs> automatic path for working people to escape all the terrible contradictions of capitalism itself. But it is a system which is economically doomed. Mm. And that doesn't mean, say, tomorrow morning at nine o'clock or at half past nine. It's a process. It's already shown in the last 10 years it's incapable of developing the productive forces. It's controlled by an unelected elite, which is not just 1% of the population, it's 0.01% of the population. Mm. Against the rest, against the majority, that's the working class and the middle class, who have no real interest in the continuation of this system. But it will not disappear automatically. The capitalists will fight to maintain this system. No privileged group disappears from the scene of history without a struggle. And that's usually without any holes barred. That's not me saying that. Hmm. That was George Brown, a leader of the Labour Party, of a right-wing Labour Party of Harold Wilson, who said that when, when his government was trying to introduce a clause limiting the company directors to £65,000 a year, and that was in 1965. Hmm. And the Economist was accusing the Harold Wilson government of being a Bolshevik government <laughs> at that stage. And it was in that context that George Brown made that famous statement that we've said this is the attitude of the Catholics. That's what Pinochet did in Chile. Mm. That's what the dictatorship in Argentina did on a national scale. And therefore, under certain circumstances, particularly if they defeat the working class in struggle, that will be their only alternative in the final analysis. But before then, the working class... That's this new generation who I have enormous confidence and faith in, who are battering at the gates of privilege in downtown Damascus, mm -hmm. in Baghdad, in Chile, which I've been to, in Santiago, where we have co-thinkers who agree with us in the Committee of Workers International. The struggle for socialism is a worldwide process. It's not confined to one country. That's one of the greatest contributions that Leon Trotsky made against Stalin's idea of socialism in one country. That's not possible. Socialism implies a higher standard of living, a higher wealth than the most advanced industrial countries. Then we can begin to dissolve all the problems that we've inherited from capitalism in a self-governing commune on a national and an international scale. Mm. And therefore, that would be the perspective that we would have in relation to the world. But the movement of working people will disarm the capitalists take their figure off the nuclear button and the rest of it in order to repress democratic movements of the working class and democratic movements in general. And therefore, socialism, democratic socialism is the only alternative. It's what Rosa Luxemburg said. It's either socialism or barbarism. And it's even worse than that now. It will be catastrophe of the global climate crisis and a catastrophe of somebody like Trump mm. pressing the nuclear button. It's not posed in the next period. I don't want to give that impression at all. But of using nuclear weapons where he's out of control, which could destroy the basis of a change in society, which would be the productive forces. Mm. And the most important productive forces is the working class, particularly the new generation that is the inheritor of the future. We are fighting for them. We're fighting for the future. We're fighting against the horrors of capitalism in all its forms in order to create a force that would be the democratic weapon to change society and usher in a new democratic socialist society. And if you want to see that happen, join the Socialist Party, join the Committee for Workers International.
Thanks very much, Peter. Thank you. The Socialist Party is the England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers' International, which organises all across the planet. And our CWI sister party in South Africa, the Marxist Workers' Party, has just launched its own podcast. Here's a couple of clips of the Marxist Workers' Party's General Secretary, Wiseman Hamilton, discussing the battle ahead for workers and young people in South Africa in the year 2020. I would say that 2019 represents the beginning of the process of the closing of the scissors between the consciousness of the masses and the objective conditions that Trotsky spoke about. It's over 40 years in reality that uh, neoliberalism has been the order of the day so far as economic policies are concerned, with devastating consequences for the working class worldwide. And of course, in South Africa itself, 2019 ended in dramatic fashion with the week-long strike at South African Airways. Now, the Marxist Workers' Party has pointed out that this battle opened a new phase in the class struggle. Wiseman, why is that? And how does the MWP view the outcome of the SAA strike? The SAA strike was uh, an important uh, indication of the meeting on the battlefield of the working class on the one hand and the capitalist class and their political managers in the form of the ANC on the other. It is a prelude, I think, this battle, to the much greater battles that are going to unfold, particularly as, as, at ESCOM, but also in the public sector broadly. It is clear from all the propaganda uh, of the capitalist press that the question of the public sector wage bill is at the center of what they believe the government's strategy should be going forward. I think there are many lessons to be learned from the manner in which Kosatu itself was built. An important attraction for workers was the fact that the leaders of the different trade union formations that came together to form Kosatu set aside the, the narrow interests of their own union bureaucracies and engaged in joint struggle. And this was expressed organizationally in the establishment of industrial locals, not only for the purposes, by the way, of uniting workers irrespective of their trade union affiliations at the time, but also to enable the organized workers to form an organized link with communities. Because what was an important feature of the consciousness of the Kosatu workers at that time was a recognition of the inseparable link between the struggle in the workplace and the struggles in working class communities. You can listen to the full podcast and subscribe so you can catch future episodes from the Marxist Workers' Party in South Africa by searching Marxist Workers' Party on SoundCloud or on YouTube. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party.
the England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers' International. This week we heard from Peter Taff and I'm James Ivans. If you agree with the policies and actions the Socialist Party in England and Wales is fighting for, we need you. Join our campaign to build a truly effective fighting force in the trade unions and labour movement. Join the Socialist Party now. Send us your details at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join. If you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for a Workers' International by visiting socialistworld.net and help us spread the word by giving us a five-star review and subscribing so you don't miss out. Don't forget to recommend us to your co-workers and friends. We want you to send us recordings from picket lines and campaigns and reports of your activity. And we want your questions, comments and ideas for future episodes. You can email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk Socialism the podcast has no wealthy backers. We survive thanks to the financial support of ordinary working class and young people. And we're proud of the political independence that gives us. So if you like what you hear, help us take the fight to big business. You can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. Till next time, solidarity.